0: Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows If you are involved with a
1: PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the US and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.
0: Welcome. To today's Global Connections program, I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to be talking with a Ukrainian journalist, Olga Tokaruk. Ms. Tokaruk is an independent journalist who is a fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford, England. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Her professional interests include international relations and disinformation research. Olga Tokaruk, welcome to today's Global Connections program.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: I'm delighted you're with me today. I know you're based in England, and you, but you still have contacts in Ukraine, obviously. Just overall, how do you assess what is going on in Ukraine? I know it's a long-distance overview of what's happening, but just briefly, how do you assess the situation right now?
1: Yes, you're right. I've been in the UK for a couple of months, but all my family is still in Ukraine. So I'm in touch with them every day and I receive the updates from the ground. Uh, So the war has been going on for 10 months already. Uh, Russia's initial goals have failed. Obviously, Russia failed to occupy all of Ukraine's uh, territory. Russia failed to occupy a major part of Ukraine's territory. Actually, Russia failed to overthrow the Ukrainian government. And in fact, the Ukrainian armed forces have shown that they are remarkably capable of uh, going on counteroffensive and reconquered uh, half of the territory that Russia initially seized. So there were impressive counteroffensives of the Ukrainian forces in uh, the Eastern part, in Kharkiv region in back in September. In November, Kherson in the south of Ukraine has been liberated by the Ukrainian forces. So Ukraine is winning on the battlefield. However, Russia is uh, targeting Ukrainian civilians increasingly unable to uh, win the Ukrainian, uh, to defeat the Ukrainian armed forces. Russia targets civilians and tries to destroy Ukrainian energy infrastructure in order to make civilian population freeze and uh, stay in the winter without electricity, without heating, without water
0: supply. It's certainly a devastating situation back when the Russians really weren't threatening to invade, they kept saying they weren't going to, Putin said he wasn't. Joe Biden was one of the few people who didn't believe Putin and said they were going to invade, and Joe Biden was correct, it looks like, in this situation. But so many people were saying that the Ukrainians just could not hold up against one of the best armies, theoretically, the best armies in the world, one of the largest armies in the world, but it's just but absolutely devastating, has it not, for the, for the Russian army that uh, was supposedly so powerful? And now we see almost how inept they are. In fact, Putin had to draft 300,000 draftees who really had no military training to send them to Ukraine. But that, along with the resilience and resiliency of the Ukrainian people, have to be two of the greatest surprises, I would think, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, we shouldn't forget that this war did not start on the 24th February of this year, but it started back in 2014. So Ukraine had eight years to reform its armed forces, to, uh, you know, provide them with more modern equipment, to train them according to NATO state standards. And in fact, many reforms have been implemented in uh, Ukraine's armed forces in this uh, eight years. And we are seeing the results now that the Ukrainian army has showed that they are capable of leadership on various levels. It is not a centralized uh, command structure like the Russian army. Uh, The Ukrainian commanders on the ground are capable of making their own independent uh, decisions. Very often these decisions are creative, are innovative, and they are just outsmarting Russian forces that are bigger in size, that have more weapons, but they are not as flexible and as modern thinking, forward thinking as the Ukrainian armed forces. And of course, a big role so Uh, place, the Ukrainian society, Ukrainian civil society that mobilized to support uh, this resistance effort. Huge uh, numbers of people every day participate in this resistance effort by donating their money to support the armed forces. Many of them volunteered to fight. Some others volunteered to take care of civilian population. They go to the frontline, to dangerous places to bring their uh, food and uh, uh, basic necessities. So it won't, won't be an exaggeration to say that whole of Ukraine is fighting in this war, not just Ukraine's armed forces.
0: It certainly is. It's certainly a, a mobilized effort and one that's been extremely resilient up to this point and hopefully will continue to do so. Well, so many actors who are not in Ukraine, I guess some who are in Ukraine and Russia are saying, when will the war, or they're asking, when will the war end? And that's a legitimate question. I don't think anybody has the answer. But what suggestions have you heard in your professional setting and elsewhere are from Ukrainians as to how to end the war? What can be done to bring it to a conclusion and certainly not to cede victory to Russia, I would think?
1: Well, Ukrainians definitely want this war to end as soon as possible. Millions of Ukrainians have become refugees. They are scattered around the world and many of them are waiting actually for the war to end, to return to Ukraine. They don't want to stay forever uh, in, in other countries. And of course, those civilians who are still in Ukraine who made the choice to stay, many of them are with children. They are also very much hopeful that Ukrainian armed forces will prevail soon and the war will end. They are ready to suffer even in the winter in the freezing conditions without electricity. Uh, Blackouts can last up to 40 hours due to Russian attacks But these people stay because they believe in Ukraine's victory What is needed to achieve this victory? Well, first of all, more pressure on Russia More pressure in terms of financial pressure More sanctions on Russia More pressure on Russian economy So that they do not have enough money to finance this war effort And then, of course, more support, more weapons to Ukraine This war can only end when Russia is defeated and it withdraws from the occupied territories of Ukraine. It cannot end with some sort of a Halfway agreement because that peace will not be tenable. We've seen already since 2014 that Russia violated uh, Minsk agreements, the peace agreements that were signed um, in 2015. Russia showed that it doesn't care about this, uh, about the peace agreements. Um, it is openly now stating its desire to destroy Ukraine as an independent state. Uh, the war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. Uh, equal according to some uh, estimates to a genocide of Ukrainian people. So it is clear that Russia has no intention to end this war. This war can only be ended when Russia is defeated and withdraws from Ukraine. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think was Putin's motivations? I know it's hard to get inside his head, but what do you think motivated him to invade Ukraine? He's been threatening and there's been a, a low scale low-waged war going on for years over in the eastern parts of Ukraine. But what do you think actually finally motivated him to take such drastic irrational action
1: Well, uh, Putin laid out his motivations in an article that uh, he published last year on, uh, uh, which was entitled on the historical unity of uh, Ukrainian and Russian people, in which he basically argues that Ukrainian people do not exist, that uh, these are just Russian people, that uh, Ukraine, uh, modern independent Ukraine has become an anti-Russia, which is threatening Russia, and therefore it has to be destroyed. So Putin um, is, you know, just an embodiment of the Russian imperialist and colonial policy towards Ukraine that was there for centuries during the history of uh, Russia attempted on many occasions to destroy Ukrainian culture destroy Ukrainian identity there was a genocide of Ukrainian people in 1930s perpetrated by joseph stalin who ordered an artificial famine holodomor which killed at least 3 million ukrainians so this is not the first attempt to crush you know ukrainian nation ukrainian um, state And uh, um, we are seeing that this effort is failing because it is based on some delusional premises. We are clearly seeing that Ukrainians and Russians are not the same people, that Ukrainians have their own very distinct identity, which is not as much based on a language or ethnicity, but which is based on values of freedom, of democracy, of um, human rights. Um, And, you know, some of the other reasons why Putin thought delusionally that uh, he will succeed and that Russian army will be able to overtake Ukraine very quickly, I think these uh, reasons are rooted in the impunity that Russia faced for all the previous wars it waged in the past 20 years, wars in Chechnya, war in Georgia, war in Ukraine that started in 2014. Putin didn't expect the reaction of the West, Putin didn't expect the solidarity that the Western world will show with Ukraine. So, uh, you know, the impunity, the detachment from reality, and the Russian centuries-long imperial policy, in my view, are the explanations why he started this war.
0: You're right. This war started long before the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, without a doubt. Well, you're watching Global Connections television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or you have a podcast or you just have a computer and you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're talking with a journalist, a Ukrainian journalist, who is currently living in Oxford, England and getting an update on the Ukrainian situation. Olga Tokaruk is an independent Ukrainian journalist and she's also a fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford. Olga, we're talking about the war, and really it's been remarkable to see how the Ukrainians have come together. The well-trained Ukrainian army has performed so well, but you're getting a lot of assistance from outside, namely from the European Union, from NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, from United Nations agencies, just a wide range of folks who are involved in this effort. How strong has that support Ben and do you expect it to stay strong into the immediate future?
1: Well, of course, the support of uh, the Western countries and institutions have been crucial in uh, maintaining Ukraine's ability to resist uh, Russian aggression. But, uh, you know, what needs to be stressed is that Ukraine is not only fighting for itself. Ukraine is fighting for the values of uh, the democratic and free world. Ukraine is uh, the last um, curtain that separates, you know, the free world and the barbaric, tyrannical world that Russia embodies. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers are sacrificing their own lives to stop Russian aggression from spreading to other countries when we listen to Russian officials to Russian propagandists on uh, state uh, controlled media they are explicitly saying that uh, you know they have also some grievances about the Baltic states or about Poland and these countries they really appreciate that the uh, are Ukrainian armed forces and that the Ukrainian society is resisting and is fighting Russia is protecting them. So it's not just Ukraine that relies on the support and on the assistance of other countries. It's also other countries who are feeling safer now because of Ukrainians and because Ukrainians are fighting and resisting. And actually, in terms of the cost that uh, this assistance of Ukraine uh, is worth for the US or other countries, these costs are not that huge. There were some um, estimates that, uh, you know, those costs are really not not as big um, compared to the cost of inaction compared to the cost of not helping Ukraine.
0: Exactly, it certainly is. There's there's been a considerable discussion in, in especially in the United States and maybe in the UK. I'm not sure, but there's been a focus also on the role of the United Nations, and we've seen the UN Security Council has been semi-paralyzed. Up to this point <clears throat> and it's basically because of the way that it's structured but on the same by the same token the United Nations agencies the UN World Food Program the UN Children's Fund the UN Refugee Agency the International Atomic Energy Agency these are all frontline UN agencies that have provided assistance to millions tens of millions of Ukrainians and does that get covered in Ukraine or the I think part of the problem is that uh, there's not uh, as much up-to-date information on the United Nations in the United States as there may be in other parts of the world, especially in developing countries. But in Ukraine, do do they see the UN as being someone who's there to provide assistance?
1: Well, unfortunately, I have to admit that the perception in Ukraine is that the UN is not doing enough. Of course, first of all, it refers to the UN Security Council, which uh, is, as you said, paralyzed because of the veto that Russia has. And also China, that uh, one of the UN Security Council members is the country that has clearly committed the crime of aggression that has clearly violated the UN Charter and the prin- basic principles of international law. So, uh, you know, there are questions, of course, raised in Ukraine. Why do we need the UN Security Council? What is the role of the UN Security Council in the modern world if one of its permanent members is allowed to commit crimes of aggression and violations of international law and get away with complete impunity. Then in terms of uh, the activity of other UN organizations, I think the most appreciated and covered is the role of the International Atomic Energy Agency and its head who has visited um, the uh, nuclear power plant in the south of Ukraine in Zaporizhia, that has been occupied by Russian forces and the where fears of uh, a nuclear disaster on that plant and there is a mediation effort negotiation effort in progress to secure the facility and possibly to hand it over to uh, a neutral um, team of experts or to ensure in the best case scenario, the withdrawal of Russian armed forces, Russian soldiers from the facility and withdrawal of weapons that are stationed there, putting in danger, not just Ukraine, but all of Europe. In terms of other UN agencies, uh, I would say that there is also some criticism inside Ukraine that they are not doing enough, that it's mostly the local volunteers, local NGOs that are more engaged in a relief effort. They are those who are more willing to risk their lives and go to the most dangerous places. And sometimes their cars get blown up on the landmines that Russians leave after withdrawing from previously occupied Ukrainian territories. And there is uh, less uh, presence of other in, of international organizations. I would say that the impression we get from uh, the the media in Ukraine is that actually it's the local uh, organizations that are helping civilians more than international organizations.
0: Oh, okay. Well, it's interesting. Those are fair concerns, and I think that we need to focus on them. But it's sort of been a schizophrenic relationship between the United Nations agencies, frontline agencies, and the Security Council. The Security Council, as I mentioned, has been semi-paralyzed, but so many of these agencies have provided, like the World Food Program, to over 5 million Ukrainians, the UN Children's Fund Health Services to something like 6 or 7 million Ukrainians. So it's a a yin-yang type of arrangement. But before we run out of time, I want to check with you on your studies that you have done the research you've done on misinformation disinformation and that type of thing we have an immense amount of that in the united states right now we're we're awash in it so we, we could be a case study for misinformation disinformation and outright lies to be quite honest but what what are some of the most salient points of your research well um
1: If to sum up uh, very briefly what we are observing in the information space um, since the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, we can conclude that uh, Russia's effort to, um, with the use of propaganda and disinformation to undermine Western support to Ukraine has failed. So the disinformation that Russia is using to uh, uh, erode the solidarity with with Ukraine uh, so far was not successful however outside of the western world if we look at the countries of the global south uh, especially brazil south africa or india just to name a few this disinformation uh, campaign and propaganda campaign uh, sponsored by uh, russian state has been much more successful and i think it's, well, there are several reasons for that, of course. The historical links of these countries with the former Soviet Union and then Russia, their own anti-Western or anti-imperialist uh, 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 grievances and economic reasons, uh, and, and maybe also less awareness about the history of the region, history of Ukraine as an independent state and Ukraine's own anti-imperialist, anti-colonial struggle. So the focus on... And uh, combating disinformation, I, I think, should be concentrated on those parts of the world. Uh, and another thing that I want to mention is that Ukraine and the Ukrainian government, the civil society and just uh, individual people have been incredibly successful also in countering Russian disinformation online using various tools such as humor as well. And actually that's my research project here at the Reuters Institute in uh, Oxford. I will be studying um, how Ukrainians used humor as a tool to combat Russian disinformation.
0: Well, we're down to our last couple of minutes and we're, we're talking about the solidarity of large groups around the world to support the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military that there may be a crack in that coming in because The Republican-led Congress that was recently elected has indicated that they are looking at cutting aid to Ukraine. And the theme that you hear so often, the mantra is no blank check. But in reality, it has not been a blank check for the Ukrainians. It is not nearly as much money spent in Ukraine as some people have declared. But what do you think can be done to overcome so much of the misinformation and disinformation that is a wash in this country and certainly a wash in Russia and i'm sure there's some in ukraine also
1: Well, I think it has to do with the democracy crisis in the U.S. and in other uh, Western countries. You know, so much of it and of these statements, they come from internal politics and internal divisions and the internal polarization that exists in the U.S. and that probably has deepened in recent years. But my hope is that uh, ultimately the, uh, you know, cool-headed approach will prevail. And even the simple cost-benefits analysis will demonstrate that it is in the U.S interest to continue supporting Ukraine, to continue standing up to Russian aggression, and that the cost of not doing it will be much higher, because uh, you know, if Russia is allowed to uh, win in Ukraine, which country will be next? Will an attack on NATO country will be next? In that case, of course, the cost for the US and for all uh, NATO will be much higher. So, you know, I really hope that this is just the political rhetoric used to mobilise the supporters ahead of the elections. And then uh, when the pe- these people are actually in power, um, they will look at the situation with a cooler head and uh, they will not cut support to Ukraine and they will maintain the solidarity and they continue, continue the assistance to Ukraine. Because as I said, Ukraine is not just fighting for itself. Ukraine is fighting for old, for all uh, world democracies.
0: It is certainly a united effort and one that needs to be supported. But Olga Tokaruk, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program.
1: Thank you very much, Bill. It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.